morning once again. It's good to see you. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Luke once again. Grateful for our brothers Clayton and Israel for preaching the last two weeks. I tried to take some extra time to work on my doctor of ministry responsibilities and, of course, had a funeral in the middle of all that, so it didn't work out exactly as smoothly as I had hoped, but uh, we leave that in the Lord's hands. But that's why uh, they preached back-to-back like that, was to give kind of a, a devoted time for other responsibilities that I have right now. But looking forward to being back in the book of Luke with you, and in Luke 6 specifically today. Throughout the last several chapters of this gospel account, we've seen Luke telling uh, us in a variety of ways, sometimes explicitly and sometimes implicitly, that Jesus had authority over different realms of life, over different realms of the world. And so we saw that people marveled when he taught in the synagogue, that he taught with authority. And then we saw that he had authority to forgive sins. And we saw that he has authority to heal lepers or the lame. And today we're going to see more uh, areas of life in which uh, Jesus is Lord, in which his authority reigns. And so follow along with me as I read here from Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to the, on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. And they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Years ago, I was part of a church uh, where a scandal uh, was uncovered involving one of the pastors. And in the weeks and particularly months after that uh, episode being unveiled, uh, two sides emerged. One of them was zealous 
uh, to know the truth, to expose the sin, to call all those who were involved in the situation to repentance. And the other side sought to save the reputation of the people involved and even the reputation of the church to keep the damage to a minimum and to move on so the church could try and resume ministry with some level of normalcy. But those two conflicting agendas were so polarized that the church quickly began to come apart at the seams. It seemed that every time you came around a corner, you'd find another group of people gathering their heads together and whispering to one another. And you'd begin to see who was part of which crowd of people whispering and who was part of another crowd of people whispering. And this was how you had conversations before texts. I know some of you may not remember a time like this, but this was how people actually talked, like face-to-face. And, and uh, I know it's kind of crazy, but sides began to form. And uh, before you knew it, people were viewing each other with great suspicion or reading motives into people and assuming that one person is on one side and, uh, or maybe they're on, or on the other side. And this often happened simply by association. So you'd see somebody and say, well, that person doesn't laugh at that person's jokes, so they must be on the bad side. Or... You might say, well, that person's wife is related to that person, so clearly he's, on, he's in that group. And you started making these garbage conclusions based on nonsensical factors. But essentially the question everyone was asking was, whose side is that person on? Whose side is that person on? And starting to draw conclusions about this. There wasn't really middle ground. You see, you, you either were on one side or you were on the other. And if you tried to stay in the middle ground, that meant you were on the bad side. <laughs> Whichever the bad side was, right? You know, depending on how you looked at it, what perspective you were taking. But in our passage today, we see people who were being forced to choose how they're going to respond to Jesus. If you're on his side, you're going to follow him. You're going to support him. You're going to follow him and defend him. And if you're on the other side, you're going to accuse him. You're going to slander him, judge him, and eventually plot to kill him. Our passage today tells us that Jesus has all authority. And that's a controversial statement, isn't it? In this passage and in our world today, that is a controversial statement. Maybe it's not controversial to you, which is a blessing. That means that you have been habituated to the the aroma of Scripture. You know what truth is, if that's not a controversial statement. But go outside these walls, talk to people who are currently worshiping some other god, or perhaps worshiping just the god of their, of their, their dreams and their ambitions and their wallet and their bank account. And it's a very controversial statement. You're, you have to decide which side you're on, his or the side of his enemies. And Luke was writing this so that his readers would see the options before them, particularly going back to Luke 1, just the earliest verses of this gospel account, Theophilus, listen to what your options are. You can follow Jesus the Messiah who seeks and saves the lost, or you can be against him. But there is no middle ground, so choose wisely. Luke was writing then so that we too would choose to follow Jesus. This passage then urges us to submit to Jesus as Lord of your life. If he has all authority over all creation, submit to him, bow to him, and choose to follow him. Align yourself with him and those who follow him. In verses 1 through 11, we see that Jesus' authority generates spiritual conflict. 
And you read in verse 1, as, as we read a few moments ago, that on a Sabbath, Jesus was going with his disciples through grain fields. And his disciples, it says, started to, to pick some heads of the grain. Now, we don't know what kind of grain this was. It's just because we're in Illinois and we have lots of corn, especially downstate. St- down this is kind of pictured they're walking through a cornfield. And what, what this is saying is they're taking a piece of corn and they're, you know, shucking it, basically, and leaving the, the shucks, I don't know what it's called, the, what's it called, the, the husks, thank you, see, I'm not a Nebraska corn husker, there we go, thank you, um, they're taking the husks and leaving them behind, and then they're eating it, and what you see then is that the Pharisees respond to this and are angry about it, why are they angry about it, well, let's just back up and realize that what they're doing is actually not illegal, in our society, we would say they're stealing corn, right, like if somebody just starts walking through somebody's cornfield and grabbing corn, we would say, you need to get out of that person's field. You're trespassing. You're actually going to be arrested for, for trespassing and taking someone's corn. In this society, that wasn't illegal. In many other societies of the world, that's not illegal today. We have a book on our resource table called Conscience by Annie Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. J.D. Crowley is a missionary in Cambodia. And when he moved to Cambodia, he had to get used to the fact that people would just walk by his house, take a mango off his tree, and eat it. And he'd be like, you just took my mango. You're stealing No, in that society, it's perfectly normal and perfectly lawful for people to take food off of other people's trees, even though it's on their property. So he had to adjust his conscience to what was right there, what was right and wrong there. And it was not not wrong for Jesus' disciples to take this food. Uh, The books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy give us, you know, clear indication that this is appropriate. This was actually a way to serve your fellow neighbors, to love your neighbors. But... The issue is with these first three words of chapter 6, on a Sabbath. There's the real problem. It wasn't that they took the food. It was that they took food on the Sabbath day, which we would understand to be Saturday. But this is the day that God had told his people to rest and specifically to not work. That's the specific command or injunction. But then what does it mean to not work? Is it work to you know, pull an animal out of the ditch that falls in. Well, Jesus will talk about that in, fellow, in, in later passages. Is it work to, you know, heal your child's wound when they fall and scrape their knee? Well, you know, yes or no, depending on circumstances, depending on whether it's a really bad cut, maybe. And so what the Pharisees are doing here is they're taking traditions that have been passed down to them and analyzing what Jesus' followers are doing, and by implication what Jesus is doing, because these are his people. These are his disciples. These are people that are known to be his, his people. Uh, what they're doing is violating the Sabbath in four ways. This is amazing. In four different ways, they're violating Sabbath commands. They're plucking the ears, which was reaping uh, grain. They rub the food together in their hands, it says. They're rubbing them in their hands at the end of verse 1. That's threshing. They threw the husks away, which was winnowing. And they ate the food, which is the idea of preparing food. Four ways, and as one, one commentator put it, four distinct breaches of the Sabbath in one mouthful. <laughs> I just think, man, how can you possibly break four laws in like 30 seconds? But that's what the Pharisees are looking at, and they're saying, your guys are doing it wrong. Get with the program. If you take God seriously, you're going to obey the Sabbath. You're going to take the Sabbath seriously. So the Pharisees were not going to let this go, that they're breaking four commands in one mouthful, so to speak. And so they ask, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And again, they say, 
They do not say, why are your disciples doing what's not lawful? They say, what are you, why are you doing this? Whether Jesus is actually doing it or not, he's guilty by association in their minds, just like those little huddles of people at, our, at that church I was telling you about. You're guilty by association. And so how does Jesus respond to that? He quotes, alludes to, probably is a better way to say, an Old Testament passage that's fairly unusual in its own right. And it's from 1 Samuel 21, where David is being pursued by Saul. David has been anointed the new king by God to be the king of God's people, but Saul's still alive, so Saul is still technically ruling. And Saul wants to kill David because David uh, is the anointed king. So he's pursuing him. And there's lots of really interesting little vignettes in 1 Samuel 20, probably 19, 20, 21, that part of 1 Samuel where uh, it's almost comical how David barely escapes one time after another with Saul right on his heels. And uh, what David does, or what Jesus does here, is talks about one of those little vignettes, one of those little stories where David is starving, he and the men with him. And so he goes to a, a tabernacle, basically he goes to the tabernacle in a place called Nob. He entered the house of God, Jesus says in, in verse 4, and he goes and talks to the priest whose name is Ahimelech. And he says, Ahimelech, I'm starving. Will you give me some food for me and for my fellow men? And basically Ahimelech says, well, have your, have your men kept themselves pure? Have they you know, fulfilled the law to the letter, of, the letter of the law? And David says, yes, they have. And Ahimelech gives them bread. But it's a special kind of bread. He's, Jesus says here, he, he uh, entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence uh, was bread that the priest would make for the Sabbath day, he made 12 loaves and put them in two stacks of six each. And he would, uh, he would just leave them on this golden table in the tabernacle. And they would sit there for a week, being offered up to God as a, as a reminder that God is their true bread. That God is, symbolically here, the one who truly satisfies their needs. Kind of picturing how the Lord provided for his people in the wilderness and so forth. And... Um, so there's this bread on this table here, and Ahimelech takes David inside and gives David some of that bread for him to eat, and he takes it back and gives it to his fellow men who are traveling with him. And Jesus says, haven't you read that story? How Ahimelech made an exception to the law because of significant human need? And now I just want to tell you, is basically what Jesus says, if David could do that, if an exception could be made for David, an exception can be made for the Son of Man, which is the title that he uses for himself here again in verse 5. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Remember, the title Son of, the Man, Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7, where you have this, this image of a person who, is, you know, who has characteristics of humanity, but also characteristics of divinity. And you have them combined in this one person. And what we find out is that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Jesus is the fulfillment of the expectation in Daniel 7 of this person who would be both God and man. And he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so I think Jesus alluded to that story from 1 Samuel 21 to say that the priest recognized the intent of the law, which is love. And he recognized that what was necessary here, that, that showing love here was, was more necessary than keeping the law to the letter of the law, so to speak. And this is why... Uh, in Hosea 6.6, 6, which is a passage that Matthew, in a parallel account, quotes. So, in other words, when Matthew tells this story, he quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, 
which says, God desires steadfast love rather than sacrifice. The spirit of the law is love. David was the beneficiary of someone understanding that. And Jesus is saying, this is how you should be viewing this as well. The, the uh, spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. And I think the point is that the people of Israel had a high regard for David. He was God's king, chosen to fulfill God's plans. But Jesus is the true and better David, the true king who only does what is righteous, unlike David. He never lied like David did. He never hid his sin or committed murder or adultery like David did. But if an exception could be made for David and those with him, so they could eat food that was only intended for the priests. So the priests would make it on a Sabbath. The next Sabbath, he would replace it with new bread and eat the old bread. If he could eat that bread intended only for the priests, then certainly an exception could be made for Jesus, who is the son of David, but also David's Lord. And the reason Jesus gives for why he can do this on the Sabbath is because in verse 5, the Son of Man, Jesus himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. That means, in part, that he's the creator of the Sabbath. It also means, in part, that, he has, uh, that, that uh, the Sabbath comes to fulfillment in him. In other words, he is the true and the better Sabbath. Jesus provides the people with the true rest, the true restoration that his people need that the Sabbath was intended to give. This is why in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you, what? What's the word? I will give you rest. I will give you Sabbath rest. Jesus is the true and better Sabbath. And so Jesus is showing his authority here over a new realm that the people hadn't considered yet. They had seen him say, I have authority to forgive sins. I have authority to heal lepers and lame people and blind people. I have authority to teach and I teach with authority. And now he's saying, I also have authority over the Sabbath. I created it and I fulfill it. Luke goes on to tell us another story of a Sabbath here as we see Jesus' authority and the conflict that it brings. The Pharisees really didn't like what, the, what Jesus and his disciples were doing. They're really not going to like what he does here either. On another Sabbath in verse 6, he entered the synagogue and was teaching and there's a man sitting there with a withered hand. So just a hand that's just hanging there and is worthless because it's so weak. Maybe there's some muscular atrophy or you know exactly what medical term we might use, say. But uh, some of you may even remember or have realized, perhaps you didn't realize, that one of the members of the mission team from Minnesota that was here this summer, uh, one of them had what we might call a withered hand. Uh, he worked super hard. So you, maybe you didn't notice that one of that as he's walking around, you know, pulling bushes out along this side of the wall and planting new bushes on that side of the wall and things like that, he's doing it with basically one hand. His other hand was just kind of hanging there and he would use the arm to support it, but his hand was basically worthless. And that's what Jesus is describing or what Luke is describing here, that Jesus sees a man with a hand that was totally worthless. And Jesus has a couple options here. He could heal it or he could say, come back tomorrow when the Sabbath is over, and then I'll heal it. But Jesus wanted to make a point. And Luke wants to make a point by combining these two stories that Jesus has total authority over the Sabbath because he is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. So this man has a hand that's totally useless, and it has significantly hindered his life. And people notice that Jesus calls him up to the middle to see whether, before that even, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. They're eyeing him to see if he's going to do something evil. That's the way they looked at it. 
This is the idea of when I worked at Land's End at Yorktown Mall. I don't even think it's, it's now in the mall. This was when it was outside of the mall. It's a clothing store up in Yorktown. When I worked there in high school, uh, one night I was, I was there with another employee, and I noticed that a customer across the store was staring back at me, which is very unusual. You know, typically, you're looking at the merchandise. And she was kind of standing there. This was winter, so she had a big coat on. And she was standing by the cashmere sweater rack, conveniently. So I just kind of observed. This was probably a situation where I needed to go get closer to her <laughs> and see what was going on. And so I kind of caught the eye of the other employee and made some comments, kind of a code that we had, that basically something was going on here. And so I went over there and started asking her if she had any questions. She looked super sus, as they would say today, suspicious. And uh, I went over to her, and then I just kept watching her the whole time. I did not take my eyes off of her. I followed her from rack to rack to rack throughout the store, and she's holding this big bundle under her coat and trying not to make it look obvious. And so then she went into a fitting room, and so I got the other employee to come over, and we just had a conversation right outside the fitting rooms. And we're just talking about the weather or the bears or whatever else was going on then in you know, 2000 or 2001 or something. Again, before all these people right here were alive, just to make that clear, and um, to date myself. But um, we just stood there, and basically, you know, while she was in the fitting room, we were watching her. But we were keeping an eye out to see if there was something going on. And then she comes out of the fitting room a minute later, and there's a huge pile of cashmere sweaters, and she darts for the door, and she's gone. I assume all the cashmere sweaters were, were there in the fitting room. Maybe she kept one under the coat. Who knows? But that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were watching her, watching him in this case, to see what was going on, to see if something bad was going to happen. But what was the bad thing? Jesus healing somebody who had a lifelong deformity. This is what the prophets would say is calling good evil and calling evil good, which we see throughout our society today. And when Jesus tells him to stand up so he can make this public, that he can make it public that he's Lord of the Sabbath, in other words, you would think people would be holding their breath, and when you see him heal him, there would be great celebration People would be putting their hands over their mouths and then cheering and clapping and going to give the man a hug because for the first time in his life, he has two working hands. And instead, the Pharisees, in verse, uh, verse 8, they're, they're, uh, I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 10, verse 11, sorry, skip down to the end of the passage. They were filled with fury. They couldn't believe it. How dare you break the Sabbath? In a synagogue of all places, when you could have just done this a couple hours from now, Jesus. To be filled with fury over Jesus doing something good. A few years ago, a, a, an author named Michael Oren, who is an American born, former Israeli ambassador to the United States. So, in other words, he was born here, but he is, a, he is a Jewish, so he then moved over to Israel. Israel and was an ambassador to the U.S. Well, he came over to speak uh, at University of California, uh, Irving, or Irvine. And uh, very liberal, you know, hotbed for liberal uh, ideologies today. And he's speaking there about, you know, Israeli relations with other Middle Eastern countries, I think, was the basic gist. I actually only saw a clip, not of the speech, but of him trying to give his speech. And as he would start to talk, I mean... Right after a very nice uh, introduction, 
he starts talking, and you know, within 10, 15 seconds, somebody stands up and starts screaming at him about hatred and all these kinds of ideas. And uh, the police come and escort that guy out. And he starts talking again. 10 or 15 seconds later, they do it again and again and again. And I think they arrested something like 12 people, took people to jail for interrupting this, this public convocation where there are probably thousands of people in this huge auditorium. And all they're doing is screaming hatred, spewing curses and, and hatred at this man who's just simply trying to give a public speech in America, no less, uh, where we have freedom of speech and so forth. That was a hostile audience. And that's the kind of audience that Jesus was dealing with that day. How dare you do this on the Sabbath? How dare you break God's law? What we're seeing in verses 1 through 11 is that Jesus' authority generates spiritual conflict. People are falling on his side or on the other side, on the good side or on the bad side. And what we understand is that the eyes of the Pharisees were blinded by sin. As all of our eyes were blinded by sin before the Holy Spirit opened our eyes and gave us life. So why sometimes we sing, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice. And it's a, a song called, O Great God. And it's a beautiful declaration of the gospel's power. It says, then your spirit gave me life opened up my eyes to see. We sing Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. How does that happen? By the power of the Holy Spirit that happens. And the eyes of the Pharisees were blinded by their sin. And we need to pray for those who have blinded eyes that the Lord would give them light and life because that is their only hope, just like it was our only hope before we put our hope in Christ. This passage makes me think of Psalm 2 where the nations are raging against God and against His anointed. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Which is exactly what's happening against Jesus here in Luke 6. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They want nothing to do with this king of gods. Psalm 2 is all about submitting to God's king in the face of people raging, filled with fury, as we see here in this passage in Luke 6. These people who hate God. But what this passage does then is beautiful in, in Psalm 2. God holds out an invitation. He opens his arms. And what's he say to do? Be wise. Be warned, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. And then he says, kiss the Son, lest you perish in the way. You have fair warning that judgment comes on all those who refuse to bow before God's Son. But blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Blessed are all those who hide themselves in in Christ. <clears throat> Just as these people are filled with fury, it says here in Psalm 2 that, that God Himself is, His wrath is quickly kindled. This is not a God to mess around with. This is a God to bow before. And you do that by bowing before Christ, the only King. Jesus' authority generates spiritual conflict. 
But on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, on the other team, are these people who do indeed kiss the Son, who do indeed bow before Jesus and say, you are the Lord of everything. And so Jesus' authority in verses 12 through 19 attracts followers. People are drawn to Jesus for the same reason that other people are rejecting Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. Other people say, wow, this is the person I want to follow. He's clearly son of God and son of man. So several features stand out here in verses 12 through 19. And I do realize that verses 17 through 19 is really the beginning of what we might call the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain technically here in Luke. But, uh, and we'll pick up with that uh, in a couple of weeks here in verse 20. But verses 17 through 19 continue to show people flocking to Jesus, attracted to his message, attracted to his person and his work. Several features stand out, though, in verse 12. The first is, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. All night! Ten hours? Eleven hours of prayer? That's amazing! And why did he do that? Why would Jesus need to pray? Because his life and his ministry depended on God's power. Our ministry does, too. This is why we pray so regularly for our evangelism and for conversions. Because giving the gospel to someone is not, here's the technique, and now see the result. This is what people throughout church history, particularly in the last 150, 200 years here in America, have kind of taught us, is that you can have the right word said in the right way, and you'll get the sale, right? You'll sell the mattress. You'll get people who want what you're selling, And that's not what the Bible teaches. This is not a transaction that we can initiate and then close the deal on. We pray for evangelism, for our evangelism, and for conversions from that evangelism because evangelism is a work of God. Conversion is a work of God. This is why we pray regularly for the preaching of God's words because we need spiritual ears to hear the word of God, to see the truth and the glory of God. Our preaching and our evangelism do not succeed because of the power of personality or because of the techniques that we incorporate in our preaching or in our evangelism. They succeed because the Spirit of God opens blind eyes, because the Spirit of God makes dead people alive. And so that's why we pray every single Wednesday night for God to use the regular preaching of God's Word, for God to open blind eyes of people in our neighborhood and people near and far around the world. This is why we urge you to pray for these same matters with us. And that's why when we give you these uh, membership directories here on the front cover, all you have here are names. Okay, If you want the addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, birthdays, anniversaries, we can give you that. We'll print it out for you. You just let us know that you want that. You also have the app available to you, and we're happy to walk through how to download that. Why do we give you this list? So you can pray these ways. And a thousand other ways, but there's some suggested ways here. The first one, for the regular preaching of the Scriptures. Take this out every day and pray for Melissa Chen, for Carl and Evelyn Conrad, for Ryan Daly, for Sharon, Sherry Daly, for Franklin and Barbara Davidson. Just go down the list and pray for those people to respond well to the regular preaching of the Scriptures. Pray for the three of us elders to just continue to go back to the Word. And I will tell you as a quick parenthesis, the thing that encouraged me the most over the last two weeks 
was that when you came here two weeks ago, you heard the message that God intended for us to hear from Ruth 1, 1 through 5. And then last week, you came and you heard the message that God intended when he breathed out Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, that Jesus is superior. And you don't need me. You don't need any of us. You just need somebody who's committed to the word of God to preach the word of God because that's what changes lives. And so that's why we spend 40 to 50 minutes every single Sunday preaching the word of God. And so all that to say, pray then for our evangelism. Pray for conversions. Pray for us to be hospitable and to disciple one another. These are things that are spiritual works. Is it appropriate to pray for physical needs? Yes, please do. Please don't be cold when somebody says, I'm dying. <laughs> or my, my husband is dying. Whatever the situation is, don't be cold toward that. But also be, be praying with spiritual eyes and spiritual hearts toward uh, what the Lord is doing behind the scenes, invisible spiritual realities. So we see Jesus praying here, and uh, what, we're, what we're noticing in verses 12 through 19, just to zoom back in, I suppose, after uh, we took that parenthesis, is that Jesus' authority attracts followers. Luke talks about prayer more than any other gospel author, and what he does is he connects prayer with major situations in Jesus' life. So when he was baptized, when he's about to go to the cross, these kinds of moments, and what Jesus is doing here is calling out of the, we assume, hundreds of people who are flocking to him, saying, we'll do everything you tell us to do. We want to help any way we possibly can. We'll give you a place to sleep. We'll give you meals. Whatever they were doing to bless Jesus, out of those, he chose 12 people that he called apostles. And, um, and what we see is Jesus taking the initiative on who these people should be after he prayed for these people. And so he calls out 12 people. The, the next thing that we notice, though, about these 12 people is that he uses ordinary people. And he still does that, which is why we're here. Because God uses ordinary people. He chooses ordinary people to do his work. He loves ordinary people. And so... For instance, when you see the name Bartholomew, where else in the Bible do we learn about Bartholomew? Nowhere. We don't know anything about Bartholomew except that Jesus hand-picked him. He only shows up in four lists of disciples. This one, one in Acts, one in Mark, and one in Matthew. That's the only four places in the Bible that we see Bartholomew. So what do we know about him? Nothing except he loved Jesus. And Jesus hand-picked him to do work with him, to minister with him. God loves to use ordinary people, but he also changes lives. Look at the other people in this list. Matthew, he was that dirty scumbag last time we, we preached this past, uh, from, from the book of Luke. He was Levi. He's a tax collector. He's considered to be a jerk. No one wants anything to do with him. And Jesus changed his life, just like he changes our lives. Simon the Zealot. What do we know about Simon the Zealot? The fact that he's zealous probably means he's zealous for Jewish people to be free from their enemies. He wants a revolution. And Jesus says, hold on. Here's how the change is going to happen. Not by fighting our enemies, by preaching the gospel. And Simon the Zealot is converted and follows Jesus and faithfully preaches God's word and follows hard after him. There's also a warning attached to this passage. When we look at the end of verse 16, Judas Iscariot. The word Iscariot simply means he's from a place called Cariot, Cariath. 
And that's far south. So he's the only one who's not a Galilean, it appears, of these, of these 12 followers of Jesus. But he became a traitor. Not he was a traitor at the beginning. Jesus spent an hour praying for him, we assume. You know, if you, if you assume he prayed for 11 hours, let's say he prayed for 45 minutes for each of those guys, who he should handpick out of these hundreds of people who are flocking to him every day. Jesus saw... And again, Jesus laid aside his omnipresence, his omnipotence as, as a human. So he didn't know who was going to abandon him, who was going to betray him when he chose Judas. There was something about Judas that made him, hey, I think this person will follow faithfully after me, will do good ministry next to me. And so there's a warning here that we need to watch over our hearts as well that we need to follow hard after Christ, that we need each other to keep pursuing every day one another and exhorting one another every day so that we don't give in to the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will destroy your life and destroyed Judas. In verses 17 through 19, as we conclude in just a moment here, we see people coming out to Jesus, great multitude of people from all over the area, Judea and Jerusalem, Tyre and Sidon, north, south, east, west, who came to hear him. What are they hearing when they hear Jesus? From the other passages we've seen, what they're hearing is the word of God. And so we urge you to hear the word of God every opportunity we have. And I love that this is in my notes and it was in Israel's pastoral prayer. We didn't talk about it. But what Israel did was he listed out the opportunities for you to hear the Word of God here. You can come to Systematic Theology next Sunday and hear Josh teach on the doctrine of the church. Then you can come next Sunday and hear Israel preach the next passage in Ruth. Again, I'm trying to finish my southern uh, responsibilities here. Uh, We'll be back to Luke after that and for a long time after that. But uh, then you can come on on this Wednesday night and you can hear us talk about Colossians 2, 6, and 7. You can come on Thursday night on Zoom, but coming to, to that Bible study and hear Exodus. Four opportunities Every single week, plus if you're a man, there's Tuesday night Bible book study, plus if you're a woman, there's Sunday night book study. There are opportunities for you to hear the word of God and to soak it in. And what we're urging you to do is to take every opportunity that your schedule allows. My schedule doesn't allow for every single one of those things, and I'm the pastor. But I think we could probably all say your schedule allows for at least two of them, and I would urge you. Okay, I'm not legalistically saying to be a church member, you have to attend two. I'm just simply saying there are opportunities for you to hear the word of God. And that's why people were flocking to Jesus was to hear him in verse 18 and to be healed of their diseases. They found great joy in Jesus. They wanted to follow him. What does it look like for us to follow him? Let me give you two closing applications here. We'll be done in just a minute. One is, it looks like him to, it looks to, Following him looks like giving money to his work. We don't talk about that a whole lot here because we don't want to make it seem like we're money grabbers and we're simply not. Okay, I think this is the first time I've given this application since I've been here. So year and a half without this application, please don't start throwing the stones all of a sudden. But simply put, statistically show, st- statistics show, statistically speaking, um, 30% of church-going Christians don't give. Ever. In an annual year, 30 out of 100 people who regularly attend church, we're not talking about the people who go on Christmas and Easter, 
They go regularly. They do not give. 30 out of 100 people do not. Okay, that's statistics. Our church in Alabama bore that out. I have not you know, asked Sherry or Teresa to give us any statistics here. But I would expect that's probably the case because that's the case statistically across our country. The New Testament makes it clear that a faithful follower of Jesus gives to God's work, sees the need, and gives. And often it means sacrifice. I don't expect that there are people here who just like throw the excess money and like, oh, this is no, I don't need this money. I could never think of any other way to spend it. I expect you're making a sacrifice. God expects you're making a sacrifice. And that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Another implication of following Jesus, we think about our time differently than non-Christians think about their time. Do you know what many non-Christians do on Sundays? They take their kids to go travel and, and play travel sports. And I love sports. And I love seeing my kids play sports. But travel teams typically travel one day of the week because the other days are reserved for things like school, the other priority in people's lives. Saturday, you play in your rec league. Sunday, you get up super early if you didn't drive several hours Saturday night and spend money on a hotel and meals. And then you get up and you watch your child play one or two or three games on Sunday. Then you travel back home again if you don't get another hotel. What I'm simply saying is you do that week in and week out and you habituate yourself and your children to making them think it's normal to skip church for a whole season of the year. And what I'm simply saying is Christians think differently about their time. Don't make it normal for you to use your time for personal gain and personal you know, responsibilities and leaving the Lord out of it. Jesus says, follow after me. And that means taking up your cross. And that means making hard decisions. Those things are normal for, a, for an unbeliever, for a person who does not see that God is the king of the world. But for someone who believes that Jesus has all authority, we would urge you to, as a matter of wisdom, habituate your family to the rhythms of the Christian life. That church situation that I told you about did not end well. Our family and dozens and dozens of others, hundreds and hundreds of people left that church because of that conflict that was going on. There were members' meetings where people were standing up and yelling across the room at other members in the same room, in the same congregation. Clear was, it was very clear that sin was entrenched in that church. And it wasn't going to change. The lines had been drawn as they were in the life of Jesus. You were either with him and you were among those who walked through grain fields and picked foods, picked food on the Sabbath, or you're against him and you're among those who rage against him. And this passage urges you to see that conflict and to choose to follow after him by repenting and believing. Align yourself with him. Don't push him away in disgust and go on living your, your own way, your life, your own way. Jesus has all authority, so bow to him and submit yourself to him as our gracious God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel, for the fact that we can open up any passage of your word and see how it reveals your glory and our need for you. We desperately need you, Lord. And so we pray that 
you would give us grace to obey this passage, to bow ourselves before Jesus and to call him, as Doubting Thomas did, my Lord and my God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.